At this time, I'll invite you to take a Bible and to open it to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We as a church family for the summer are going through the Ten Commandments, one commandment at a time. And today we're on the seventh commandment. And it's found in Exodus chapter 20. If you're using one of the Bibles that's been provided for you, you'll find it on page 160. Excuse me, I'm in Deuteronomy 20. almost gave you the wrong page number. On 61. On page 61, Exodus chapter 20, as we go through the seventh commandment. But just to set up this series for you, that as we understand it in the history of the flow of the story of the people of God, when these commandments were given, they were not given to say, here are the ten things that you need to do, and if you do all of these ten things, then you'll be in a right relationship with me. That No, that's, that's not how the story goes. God had already rescued and saved his people out of slavery in Egypt. And after he rescued them, after he gave them his grace, he then gave them commandments and laws about how they should live their life. So that none of these were ways in which they earned God's favor, but because he had already showed his love for them, because he had already cared for them, he was now saying to them, this is how you are to live your life. I who gave you your life, who gave you your freedom, I've given it to you, but you have to pay attention to how you live it out. Because safe from any other harm or any other threat, if you don't understand how to live now this new way of life, you'll fall right back into slavery by your own choosing. And so God gave these as a loving father to say to them, if you follow this, then you will stay in that relationship. You will enjoy that relationship. So rather than us just looking up at God and saying, oh, we could never satisfy him because he demands perfection, what it is is our loving heavenly father saying, these are the things I want you to do so that you can enjoy the relationship that I've already given to you. But we understand that salvation is entirely by grace. None of us can do enough and be good enough to ultimately earn God's favor. So as we go to this seventh commandment and as we try to understand it in its fullness, please don't make the mistake of thinking that why we're talking about it is because it's only in as much as we obey this that God would ever care about us. And we're going to go later at the end of the sermon to the Gospel of John and we'll see this specifically as Jesus encounters two different people who've broken this commandment. But their breaking of the commandment doesn't mean anything in terms of their ability to be saved. But we've also subtitled this the, the law as lens, mirror, and window. And part of what we mean by that is that when we come to the Bible, it helps us see things in the world as a lens. So I, as someone who needs corrective lenses to see, I have a frustrating experience on a regular basis where if I put my glasses anywhere other than where I normally put them, right by my bed, then I can't find them. And it takes me a long time to find them. And it takes me a long time because I need them in order to see. And while I don't have them, I can't see. And it, I struggle to know where they are. And when we read the pages of scripture and learn from God himself, what it does is it gives us a corrective lens to see and interpret the world as the way that it should be. We learn things about our world. Some of us think we come to the Bible to learn about the Bible, and that's true. But when we're really getting into it, The Bible teaches us so much about ourselves and about our world. So Exodus chapter 20, and we're reading in verse 14. It's very straightforward, very simple. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. 
Again, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. So this commandment, when we look at it and we say, so if this is true, and this is something that we're not supposed to do, what is it that we're supposed to do? What is it assuming is valid? So last week it was, you shall not murder. And we said, well, if we shouldn't murder, part of what that assumes is that we believe that life is sacred, that life is unique and valuable. And it's because life is sacred that we do not take human life. And so here again, because we should not commit adultery, it is telling us something about marriage. And the first thing that we need to know about marriage is that marriage is from God and for God. According to the Bible, marriage is from God and it's for God. In other words, it's, it's his idea. He was the one who performed the very, very first marriage ceremony. He was the one who brought a man and a woman together and said, you are now a unit, a family unit as husband and wife. And then he gave them instructions of what to do. And so it's from him. It's his idea. And we start from that basis. Not that a couple of people sat in a room and said, you know, what's the best way to organize human beings? What's, what's the healthiest way for them to experience this or that? And then in some back room somewhere, someone said, marriage sounds like a good idea. So let's have marriage. And therefore, that over time, we as human beings could sort of reevaluate that and say, well, what do we think about it now? And do we think it should change? Do we think it should shift? If it's originally God's idea, if it's from him and it's for him, then he's the one who gets to define it, and he's the one who gets to determine whether or not it should ever change. So that's our view, not just of marriage, it's our view of everything. That if he's the author of life, and it's from him, and he knows about it, then it would make most sense that we would go to him for instruction about it. Right? Just like those, for you who own a car, if you're ever having some kind of an issue with that car, you consult an owner's manual, which is the document written by the person who designed it. Because if anyone would know how it works and how it should work, it's the one who designed it to work that way. The actual engineer that put it together. And so it it should just be common sense to say, if I have any questions about this and I have the ability to consult the manual, I should consult the manual. For many of us, if we go to a museum and we look at a wonderful piece of art, we might look at it and have different interpretations of it and say, well, I think what the artist is doing here is this. Well, I think they're doing this. And a lot of times we're talking about a piece of artwork that's hundreds of years old. But if the artist is alive and still producing the art, and we can actually talk to him and figure out what in his own or her own mind was going on, wouldn't it make most sense that we would go to the artist, to the designer, to the creator, and say, what did you have in mind when you were doing this? Why did you make it this way? Why did you use this color scheme? Why did you make it this size? Why is this in here? But the authority on the subject is the designer, is the original creator. And so for those of us who believe that marriage is from God and for God, we want to take most seriously what God has to say about it. It's to us just ordinary common sense. That if he defined it, he must know how it works. He must know the best way for us to enjoy it. And when we say it's from him and for him, that it's meant to reflect something even beyond itself, that it's for his own glory, it's for his own praise. And again, we believe that about more things than just marriage. That is generally true of all of our lives, that we were created by him and we were created to bring him glory, to live out a purpose even above and beyond our own days. And when we come to the Bible and we see this commandment, 
One of the things that tells us about marriage is that marriage is about promises, not feelings. Marriage is primarily about promises, not feelings. And so this prohibition that you have come together as a husband and wife, you have before God become married, and in that you have made promises to one another, promises of faithfulness. And over time, we will determine whether those promises made are promises kept. But it doesn't say here, you should not ever feel a certain way. You should ever not feel dissatisfied in marriage. You should never not feel um, attracted to anyone else. It doesn't deal with marriage at the level of our feelings. It deals with it at the level of the commitment and the promises that we make. And the encouragement is that the promises made should be promises kept. And that faithfulness and fidelity to the person that we're married to is a part of that design. And that's not just true in marriage. God would say that about every area of our lives. Make the promises you keep. And if you don't have any intention of keeping the promise, then do not make the promise. It doesn't become better just by giving it the appearance of a promise. That we actually see in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We won't go there for now because we have too many places we'll be. But just look at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's where Solomon says, it is better to not vow than to vow and not promise. It is better in the eyes of God to not make a vow, to not make a promise, than to make a promise and not keep it. And so here, this commandment is saying to us to obey and keep the promises that we make to one another, that marriage is about promises and not feelings. And this is a a totally different view than what is often presented to us in terms of marriage. That marriage is often presented to us as the way to receive ultimate fulfillment in another human being with whom you have feelings that you have for nobody else. And then most people come in some crisis when they realize that feelings are something that come and go. That there are certain times where you feel a certain way with people and there are other times, depending on the day, depending on what you ate for breakfast, depending on how much sleep you got last night, that your feelings are an incredibly fluid thing. And so if we make decisions based on feelings, we'll be on really shaky ground because our feelings come and go all the time. It's true about marriage, yes, but it's true about everything else. Our feelings are not the most fundamental thing upon which we should make decisions, especially long-term, lifelong decisions because feelings come and go. But for the person who's been told that you should do it based on your feelings and only based on your feelings, then comes to a real crisis point when they realize they don't feel a certain way anymore. Certain experiences have come up, certain challenges have arisen, and now they struggle with what to do with their feelings. But if it is about promises, that if you're here and you're a husband or you're a wife, that your primary thing is to look back and to say to yourself, how am I acting in accord with the promises that I've made? Not how am I feeling at any given moment, but how am I acting consistent or inconsistent with the promises that I've made? Because that's the only thing you or I can control is the extent to which we keep our word. We can't make another person love us. We can't make another person stay with us. A relationship is a two-way thing. And so there are times when other people decide that they don't want to keep the promises they made. They don't want to act in accord with what they've said. And we can't control that. All we can do, and so when two people come together and they exchange vows, 
one person can't promise for the other one. He doesn't say, I promise that you will do this, you will do that, because it's not possible. We make a promise about our own behavior, that I will be faithful for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. And God knows our heart, he knows our future, and he looks at us accordingly and says, ultimately, a society where people keep their promises is a society that God intends. It is God's will for us to keep the promises that we make and that he knows us, he knows how we work, he knows how we're designed, and that for us to experience what he intends for us in our human relationships is that we take our words seriously and as much as possible, we keep the promises that we made. And then lastly, through this lens, we learn from all the rest of the commandments that marriage is ultimately about children and society. So I, had a, I was having a conversation with someone who said, you know, the Bible is just so outdated and so archaic in what it tells people to do or not to do. And I said, well, let me, let me just ask you a couple of questions. First of all, it is written like thousands of years ago, so that's true. Okay? So they didn't have certain mechanisms that we have today to alleviate some things. So if before there was technology that we have today or birth control that's used today, the possibility of human life being created in every sexual act, would that change the way you think about what it says? And this couple very honestly said, oh, yeah. Oh, that totally would. That the possibility that there would be a new boy or a new girl there and that someone would say, now who's responsible for this new boy and this new girl? Who, who is going to care for this new boy or this new girl because they can't care for themselves? If some adult does not take responsibility to raise this child, this child does not raise itself. It is dependent upon the loving care of other people. And still today, in all of our social science research, it is verifiable in any institution that when we ask the question from the perspective of children and human development and psychology in terms of what helps them to flourish the most and what helps them to develop the best, and you ask that question, what would be the, the sort of the, the foolproof, not foolproof, that's a, that's a wrong phrase because nothing is guaranteed, but just asking what's sort of in their best interest of how to be raised, the evidence is clear. Knowing the man and the woman from whom they come, having a relationship with them, being in a stable home as much as they can for the growth and development. And that that's ultimately good for society. That, that helps us grow and mature as the human beings that we want to be. Now, we live in a world where almost none of us experience that because we experience sin at every level. There's no perfect parent. There's no perfect marriage. There's no perfect situation. But ultimately, when we look at it from the ground up of what humans need in their own emotions, in their own brain development, relationally, how they were designed, what is best for them. It is best for them when parents love them, when grandparents are around to help care for them, when aunts and uncles are there. They have real relationships with human beings who desire to help them grow and mature and develop. And that that ultimately helps us to flourish in society. All of these things the Bible tells us about marriage, that it's from God and for him, that it's about promises and not feelings, that it is ultimately what helps children to grow and mature and develop, which helps society in a larger sense.
And now all of this is fundamentally being challenged. And none of what I've just said is assumed anymore by almost anyone. The, the assumption is that just like anything, and part of it is just how we're wired as 21st century Westerners, is that we don't take anything as given. We think we have the freedom to redefine and to change anything. Through whatever means or processes we can, we don't receive wisdom from previous generations and say, wow, there, there was something there. We should hold on to that. We should see the different pain that it's been experienced in the past, the different wrong turns people have made, and we should value what we receive as wisdom. We just assume that anything is up for grabs. And so if you look in our own culture, if you just think about every evening sitcom or recent TV show that you've watched, right? I'm genuinely puzzled just as a cultural observer to say how in our society has the right to marry become the defining civil rights issue of our generation when in every possible means marriage is thought of as the ignorance of another generation? How has the right to marry become the defining civil rights issue of our generation when in every portrayal through sitcoms or media it is described as the ignorance of other generations? What do I mean by that? When you watch a sitcom or a modern romance movie, is marriage thought of and presented as a good thing? Usually not. It's usually presented as the thing which kills a relationship. It's the thing that you want to avoid at all possible, that a relationship is good and great as you get to know someone and as you already live with them, but to get married to that person, that just that puts so much pressure on you, that puts so much burden on you, and so it's the last thing that you should do if you actually want to enjoy your relationship. And so you don't watch sitcoms anymore or movies anymore that present marriage as something worth waiting for and something when conflict arises worth fighting for. You don't. That's not the story as a culture that we tell about marriage. So that's why, just for me, it's just a genuine puzzle that it's become, therefore, the, the civil rights issue of our time because I didn't know anyone thought it was a good thing. I didn't know anyone valued it as a society, that we would therefore desire it. But as Christians, we do think it's a good thing, and we do value it. We think it's something worth waiting for, and it's something worth fighting for, because we take a long view of these things. We try as much as we can to receive the wisdom of the past, but we also try to project forward and say, what has the designer told us about how life works how we work as human beings, and the type of relationships that we want the most. So now we'll go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 to hear Jesus talk about this commandment. So we have the commandment, and we have it, its history all throughout the Old Testament, but then we have Jesus himself talking about this commandment in, on page 810. This is what's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, The sermon covers three chapters, so it covers a lot of subjects, but we get the words of Jesus specifically on this commandment in verse 27. And here what we're trying to do, um, we've gone from the lens now to the mirror, that when we take what the Bible says seriously about marriage, and then we look at the mirror in ourselves, this is something that Jesus said in verse 27 of chapter 5. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so that's where we'll stop. If you're not familiar with the Bible at all, and even some of you who are, these are incredibly shocking verses. If all you know of Jesus is sort of the the Christmas carols, and uh, so you know about the Jesus meek and mild in a manger, then it just shocks you that as an adult he would say something like this. But he did. This is the Gospel of Matthew. This is the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. That you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That then for most people you should say, oh, I think we're all guilty. I think if I'm reading that right, what Jesus is saying is that all of us are guilty of not living in accord with the commands that he's given for marriage and for healthy sexuality. When you read through what he says about oaths or anger or retaliation, that's kind of the point of the whole sermon, to say that there's not one of us who is pure in this regard. All of us are guilty to varying degrees. But one of the things that's also clear here is that Jesus believes something so fundamentally different than what our modern day presents to us, which is we often hear, it doesn't matter what you do in private as long as in public you do X, Y, Z. We hear that all the time. It doesn't matter what you do in private as long as in public you behave a certain way. And Jesus just does not accept that differentiation. And, and human psychology all the way up until the point until today did not accept that differentiation. What you do in private absolutely affects who you are in public. What you do when no one is watching and when no one knows absolutely comes out in ways in then how you relate and how you treat people. There is no way to separate those two things. He's not making an equivalency that it is just as wrong to lust in your mind as it is to commit adultery, that they're the two exact same things, but no one commits adultery who has not already in his or her mind done so. No one sins before they think about it. And in thinking about it, think, I think I'd like to do that. I think I'd like to experience that. So our thoughts of it is not the same. Clearly, the damage and the consequences of only thinking about it and actually doing it are totally different. And it is much more serious to actually carry out our thoughts. But there's not a single person in the world who is currently living in an immoral lifestyle that has not first thought about it for a long period of time. And so that's where Jesus says to us, if this is something that you're giving a lot of thought to, if this is something that you're wrestling with in your own mind, away from the knowledge of anyone else, don't believe the lie that what you do in private doesn't matter in public. Deal with it in the realm of your thoughts so that it does not become something that you act upon. But we hear this all the time, whether it's 
people running for office or people on sports teams, you just hear commentators all the time. I don't care what he does in private as long as he performs on the field. Okay, how well does that go for most guys? How can they perform on the field when they end up in jail? How can a CEO run his company well when he ends up in jail? And we have several stories just in our own community in the last year of school administrators being fired because of what they were looking at on a computer. And somebody wants to suggest that it doesn't matter what you do in private as long as it doesn't, isn't something that you do in public. This is just heartbreaking research. This, this article is called A Pornified Culture. I do have to tell you that doing research for the seventh commandment is incredibly challenging. The, the care I had to do in Google searching things was like, okay, make sure I don't type this, this, or that, or something. Um, I don't recommend it to you. But here's an article. This is research from the American Psychological Association on the effects of pornography in our culture. It says the saturation of sexualized images of females is leading to body hatred, eating disorders, low self-esteem, depression, high rates of teen pregnancy, and unhealthy sexual development in our girl children. It also leads to impaired cognitive performance. In short, if we tell girls that looking hot is the only way to be validated, rather than encouraging them to be active players in the world, they underperform at everything else. But the consequences of sexualizing girls are far more devastating than this. Rape is at crisis levels, and one in three women will be a victim of stalking, sexual harassment, or sexual violence in their lifetime. It is horrible. The sexualization of girls is not just shattering the lives of girls and women, it is preventing boys and young men from relating to girls and women as complex human beings with so much to offer them. It is preventing boys from forming healthy friendships and working relationships with girls and women. Instead, it is nurturing potentially violent abusers. It means boys are not free to be themselves, to know their own humanity. The article goes on to say, pornography does prevent boys from forming normal and healthy relationships with girls. Implicit in pornography is the understanding that women exist to be exploited and exist primarily for the pleasure of men. They do not need to be embraced as friends or wooed or admired, rather to be conquered, used, and left behind. Boys that immerse themselves in pornography are not able to fulfill their God-given roles as leaders and protectors. They are instead exploiters. And so part of what Jesus is saying is that if you're someone and in your minds and thoughts you believe the cultural lie that what you do in private has no bearing on what you do in public, he's saying if you have a smartphone, go and throw it in some water somewhere. If you have a computer right now that you don't have control over, take a bat and beat it. Do whatever you have to do to gain victory in your own minds and thoughts as it relates to other human beings because what you do in private absolutely spills over into who you are in public, into how you relate to people. And so many of us as Christians have bought into the lie of our culture that as long as people don't know and as long as we don't do certain things, then it's not that bad. But all of the research is suggesting that that's simply not possible. You cannot be an intelligent human being and believe that anymore. You have to deny the facts as they're presented to us, even from not. The American Psychological Association is not a Christian organization. They don't give a rip about what Jesus had to say. 
But that's not where the story ends because, as we said, if you are listening to Jesus and you're taking him seriously, then you realize that none of us is pure. And so what we have in the Gospel of John, when we look through the window, is Jesus dealing with two women specifically who have not lived out God's plans and purposes as it relates to their sexuality. So go to John chapter 4. We're going to read a story about Jesus and a woman at a well. We've already been here once for this series, but we're going to go a little bit farther on than where we were last time. So we're going to pick this up in verse 7 of John chapter 4. So what would Jesus say to someone who would admit and acknowledge they haven't been living according to his plan and purpose. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And that's where we'll stop. So here Jesus encounters this woman who up to this point they'd never met before. But Jesus, as God in the flesh, knew fully her story, knew fully her sinfulness, knew fully her shame. And she could not put on, even in just a momentary encounter, a face to pretend as if she had been perfectly obeying all of his commandments and all of his will up until that point. And Jesus makes clear to her, I know everything you've done. I do. I know everything you've done. I know what you're currently doing. And I'm offering you 
living water. You keep trying to find a man to satisfy your desires. You keep running from one relationship to another. You keep, in all of this, you're trying to fulfill a void that no other human being can fill. You were designed to have a relationship with your creator. And every time you try to fill that relationship with another human being in whatever way it is, you ultimately find yourself frustrated and angry and not satisfied. And so I'm offering you a relationship with me that when you have it, you will never thirst again. And it's something deeper and more profound that sexual intimacy only points to, is only a picture of, and never ultimately satisfies. And so when he comes to her and says to her, I know everything about you and I love you anyway, he is saying to her also what is so different than what our modern culture presents to us as the way in which to form real relationships. So much of what we do is put on a face to people so that they only know the best version of ourselves and then we hope that they fall in love and become really, really attractive to that best version of ourselves and then maybe if they find out we're a little messed up, they'll, they'll just stay with us for a little bit longer. And instead Jesus is saying, I know the worst version of yourself. I know all of your thoughts and sins and I love you anyway. When you experience that kind of love, you understand that there is a love that is deeper and transcends ultimately what we experience or pursue in sexual intimacy. Now go to John chapter 8. Here Jesus deals with another woman. This is on page 894. John chapter 8, verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here again, we see the heart of our Savior. There's no secrecy here. There's no lack of information here. He knows what she's done. In fact, the whole crowd knows what's been done. And we don't know what Jesus wrote in the ground. And many people speculate on it, but whatever it was, it was something convicting enough to everyone else that when he then gave them the opportunity and said, okay, so you who's without sin, you cast the first stone. No one did. And they all left. And Jesus extended to this woman not simply forgiveness for the past, but in love to her said, going forward, sin no more. Because he loved her, 
Because he showed compassion on her, he said to her, go and sin no more. And again, in our modern day vernacular, we're often told you don't love someone if you disagree with them. You don't love someone if you don't affirm them. You don't love someone if you challenge them. And Jesus knows nothing of that kind of love. (laughs) He says, because I love you, I want to tell you not to do the things that are harmful to you. Because I love you, I want you to experience freedom from what you are enslaved by. Because I love you, I want you to stop ultimately trying to live for yourself, trying to live life in in a way that if you only satisfy all of your desires and all of your feelings, then you'll be happy. So that's not where happiness comes from. I'm inviting you into a relationship with me. I'm inviting you to die to yourself and whatever your sins are, I'm inviting you to find forgiveness because of me. That's the good news. That's what happens when we look at the law of God as through a lens, as through a mirror, and ultimately through a window to see our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are thankful for your compassion and your truth. That when we read your words of what you said and what you did, you are the one who is able to sift through all of our superficialities, all of our pretensions, all of our fake religion, all of our public appearances, that you can get down into the heart of who we are, of what we struggle with, of what our sins are, and that you offer each of us grace and compassion and mercy. You offer us freedom. Father, I pray that we would simultaneously be convicted of our sin each and every one of us, to know that none of us is pure, but that we would also be convicted of your great love for us. That the way you love us and the relationship you desire to have with us is truly deeper and better and stronger than anything we could experience here on earth. So I pray that you would help us to ultimately not just consider what our own thoughts and what our own opinions are, but that we would wrestle with your word, with your wisdom, and ultimately with your son. And that we would be open to the type of life that he desires for each of us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.